So life is filled with surprises. That shouldn't be a surprise to any of us. But things don't often go the way that we expect. Maybe you're experiencing that now at this present time. And of course, probably in past times. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but uh, my first date with Joyce was interesting. Uh, we scheduled our first date. She was 20 minutes late. And why she was late, I, I don't quite remember. She, the, the place that we were meeting, the restaurant, was in Koreatown. She both lived and worked in Koreatown, and I lived in San Pedro. But somehow she was 20 minutes late. Five minutes into our date, she proceeds to tell me that she's more comfortable speaking Korean than she is English. I tried not to have my jaw drop to the ground because I'm more comfortable speaking English than in Korean, as you might expect. And so about seven minutes into our date, I had already determined that this wasn't going to work out. And I would never have guessed, based on how that date started, that we would have ended up who we are today, as a married couple with a son and another on the way. Who would have expected that? I couldn't have expected that based on how things started. And so, yeah, what we learn in life is that things don't always go the way that we expect. What are some of the things going on in your life, maybe presently, that are not going as you had hoped, as you would have expected it to go? I think the unpredictability in life is often where a lot of the joys of life come from, but also a lot of its pain a lot of its sorrow, and a lot of its suffering. For Jesus' disciples, in John chapter 13, the night started off with great anticipation as they were celebrating maybe the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar, the Passover feast. But by the time the night was over in John chapter 18, verse 12, one of their own had abandoned them, and Jesus was being arrested by the Jewish authorities, made possible by the betrayal of that same disciple. And certainly, for the disciples, everything about that night went differently than they would have expected. But from their perspective, things are going to go from bad to even worse. As we pick back up in John chapter 18, beginning with verse 13. If you'll follow along as I read. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is the aftermath of Jesus' arrest. He shuffled into the courtyard of the high priest. And what's interesting to note is that it says that he's uh, led to see Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest that year. It's because uh, Annas being the the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was the uh, patriarch of the family. He was uh, the high priest. But officially this year, Caiaphas had uh, taken the role. And in fact, uh, among Annas' five sons, each of them had taken time being the high priest. But as we all know in patriarchal families, I don't care what your title is, the father or the grandfather is still the one who's in charge. And so, of course, when we talk about the high priest, it's not... Caiaphas or any of his sons, it's really Annas. And so Jesus is shuffled before Annas. But then afterwards, as we see in our text, he's going to then see Caiaphas. We don't actually hear about the interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas in our passage, but it's alluded to. And so here Jesus is standing there in that courtyard, and he's standing face to face with the the high priest, with Annas. And so it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition because here we have the high priest standing before the high priest interrogating him. It's an interesting kind of situation that Jesus is essentially in our passage, it's like he's being put on trial. And of course, as you all know, trials are set up to condemn people of some kind of guilt. But let me ask you, how do you condemn God when he hasn't done anything wrong? That's an interesting question to ask. And it does present a problem for Jesus' enemies. Because if you want to condemn him in the, before the eyes of the people and the eyes of the world, how do you do that when he actually hasn't done anything wrong? They do attack this from the standpoint of uh, trying to address Jesus' teaching and theology. So that's why they begin to question him about his teachings. But the question that I want to pose, the first question, is how did Jesus' enemies seek to condemn him before the world? Because that's an important question to begin with. How did Jesus' enemies seek to condemn him before the world? We look at our passage and we see that Jesus is, as he's confronted by the, uh, the, the high priest, that the circumstances are not what we would consider typical. So there are three words that I'd like to focus your attention on when it comes to what his enemies do in order to try to condemn him. Those words are manipulation, justification, and fear. Consider, this is definitely a manipulation of the situation. Jesus is brought before the high priest, not during the day, when, of course, normal trials would take place, but it's the dead of the night. In fact, probably the early wee hours of the you know, morning, it's enough in the middle of the night where it's cold and everybody's trying to warm themselves by fires. And the gathering of, for this trial is not with all of the Sanhedrin or all of the Jewish authorities. It's just the high priest and a few of his select, in the, uh, select circle that are probably there. 
This is not how one would conduct a trial or a questioning, really an interrogation, with any kind of credibility. You don't do this in the dark of night. As you all know, things that happen in the dark of night when everybody is asleep, that's some shady stuff. Interestingly enough, a lot of things in the government take place in the dark of night when we're all asleep, just as a side note. Anyways, this is what the high priest does. The high priest, the one who represents the temple, the one who represents the, the altar of God, worship of God, the coming together of his people and God, the one who is the quote-unquote go-between, this individual and the institution that he represents is playing it shady. And then he decides to go about it for reasons of his own justification. Because he reasons to himself that the ends justify the means. Whether it's Annas or Caiaphas, of course they're going to be on the same page as this. But it says in our passage that Caiaphas, in verse 14, that he was the one who had advised the Jews, and the Jews meaning the Jewish authorities, that it would be more expedient for one man to die for the people. In other words, it would be more it would be better. It'd be easier. Another word for this would be, it would be more pragmatic. It just so happens that that's a really common practice among people, right? That whenever we're engaging in activities that might otherwise trouble our conscience, that we justify to ourselves why it is reasonable, why it is acceptable, and why it's pragmatic. The idea being that Jesus, it's better, to, even though he hasn't officially done anything wrong, officially or otherwise, it'd be better for Jesus to pay the price rather than there be an uprising before the Romans and then the, you know, the Jewish people being put down, especially the authorities who are in power. Because every single time this would occur, many people would suffer and some would die and the Roman Empire would clamp down. So it's a pragmatic thing. You don't want, and that was the thing about the Jewish authorities, they were in a position of power, so the one thing they don't want to do is rock the boat. Ironic, the Jewish people who fought for their freedom and continuously rebelled because, in, throughout their history because they couldn't stand to be under the rule and thumb of any foreign power, by this time, their leaders, the authorities, and the ones who had the most influence went along with it. They don't want to rock the boat. Because their entire lives, their status, their power is secured by keeping the status quo. And so they reason to themselves, it's better for Jesus, for one man to pay the price, than for all of us. Pragmatism, and we'll get to this, being really pragmatic as a reason for why we do things is a dangerous thing. But the third thing, fear. Things are always scarier at night, are they not? If you've ever been stressed by the circumstances of your life, probably it's worst at night. Can't sleep at night. You worry about things at night. All of the concerns and the things that weigh on your mind are worst at night. Here Jesus is brought at the end of a long day into the courtyard of the high priest. And he's not brought in by request, but he's taken physically at Jesus' allowance, 
but he's taken physically by armed guards, brought in to a courtyard where he stands alone, and then interrogated. When Jesus responds, there is a soldier there that takes it upon himself to slap some respect into Jesus. This is not a situation and environment that is all about collaboration or understanding or any of that. This is about inducing fear and intimidation so that Jesus and all of his followers and any others would fall into place. The timing of these circumstances, the environment, the methods, they were all used to instill fear, intimidation in him. You know, so much about the way that things occur in our society as in human interaction is all about sending messages. The message that is trying to be sent to Jesus is clear. We're in power. You're in our power. And you need to identify your situation. Manipulation, justification, and fear. Each of these methods that are taken are tools that Satan always uses with people. And I guess it's not surprising for people who have given in to Satan's temptations that they would utilize the same methods that he uses, whether they know it or not. So here is the high priest standing before the high priest, the one who would sacrifice himself so that truly there would be he would be the go-between the people and God. So how did Jesus respond to their attempts to condemn him? We see in verse 20, if you'll follow along, we'll continue and pick up in our passage from there. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. When interrogated about his teachings that he was instructing the people with, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues, and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And verse 23, Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? This is an Old Testament reference, as in the law and how interactions were supposed to take place with people, that if you are wrongly accused, then you would stand up for yourself and you need to have someone bear witness against it. And so Annas, verse 24, then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. How did Jesus respond to their attempts to condemn him? Jesus responds to his enemies, and I'd like you to focus upon three words. Transparency, truth, and courage. Transparency because Jesus didn't conceal anything about what he taught. Meaning what he said in private is essentially the same thing that he said in public. You juxtapose that with the high priest who in public would talk about, what, integrity? And yet, when push comes to shove, that goes out the window. Jesus didn't conceal anything that he was doing. It was consistent. Nothing changed. His message did not change. 
And what he did did not change. Because what he spoke and what he preached is the same as who he is. Because the second word, truth. Jesus said this frequently, that he is the truth. For everything that he preached, the answer was him. Jesus didn't deviate from the truth, not out of pragmatism or justification, because that would be him going against himself. You know, I think when we look at Jesus' life, we look at his ministry, one thing that we see is this, in terms of how God proceeds. God is not a God that chooses his course of action based on pragmatism or justifications. Being true to himself, the big truth of the word of God. When God speaks, he is always consistent with it. He does not deviate for the sake of convenience. You look throughout everything that God did with his people throughout its history, and constantly what you'll see is God often takes the long road. God often takes the road that is least convenient, the one that is most costly, the one that actually extracts for God, I think, the most pain. It costs God. I think it would be important for us to take and be mindful of the fact that when we talk about truth, truth is not something that you bend or modify for the sake of convenience. In this moment, Jesus could have taken one of many different routes in order to end this situation more expediently. I'm assuming that if it was any of his disciples, probably what they would have done. And interesting to note that Jesus says in answer to the question, why don't you ask those who have heard what I have taught? They know. Interestingly, two of those such individuals are present there. One we know is Peter, and the other one is probably the author of this gospel. But if those two were standing before those who were interrogating, I'm certain that pragmatism would have come into play. Pragmatism, I think we see, is not God's method of operation. It's something for us to consider as God's people, as his disciples as well. And the third thing is courage. Courage. Jesus, in this situation, did not bend to the intimidation, the attempts of fear. He stood, and he responds as Jesus would. Whenever the Jewish authorities ask him a question, I love how Jesus says what he wants to say, whatever deeper truth is related to whatever maybe was asked. They ask him a question, a direct question, and Jesus says, why don't you ask the people who have heard me? Jesus demonstrates courage. And I do want to say, as much as Jesus is God, Jesus is also, in his earthly life, does feel all of the trappings of what it means to be human. I think we mistakenly identify God, Jesus, as God from the standpoint, of course, that he is the one and only, all-powerful, all-knowing. I think we underappreciate Jesus when we conveniently, for our own justifications, ignore his humanity. Now let me ask a third question. How do we respond as Christ's church? How do we respond as Christ's church? Verse 25 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The rooster crowed, just as Jesus had said in chapter 13, when during the meal, the Passover meal, all of his disciples were declaring their undying allegiance to him. And Peter specifically stood up in the midst of all of those statements and said, I will never deny you. I am willing to die for you. And to that Jesus says, you will deny me before the rooster crows. And so here, the rooster crows upon his three-time denial. When I was growing up in Colorado in the 80s, I was growing up with people who really didn't look like me. Uh, during the 80s, Colorado was pretty monochromatic, let's just say. It's mainly all white people. And I remember noticing that everybody didn't quite look like me. So everything that I tried to do in my life was to fit in. I wanted to fit in so badly because when I was living in Colorado, I was in elementary. I mean, from birth to about 10. You can imagine during that age, the last thing you want is to stick out. You don't want to be the one that everybody notices when you walk into the room. You don't want to be the one that people notice when you bring your lunch and they ask the question, what's that smell? I didn't want to stick out. So I did everything in my power to blend in. I wanted to eat like all of the people around me. I wanted to dress like all of the people around me. When my friends came over, I wanted them to wear their shoes like they were all doing at their own homes. I even asked my mom one day, can we put butter on that rice? And why is our rice so sticky? My friends down the street, they have rice, but it's this different kind of rice. It's all separate. You can eat one by one. And my mom said, you know you are not like them, right? I spent my entire life feeling like I wanted to belong. Even after we moved to California, I wanted to fit in. And, you know, eventually we end up moving to like Cerritos and a lot of Asians there. So it was easier to blend in and fit in. But I was always reminded in little things that I didn't fit in in the eyes of other people. I'd get questions like, where are you from? I'm like, Colorado. Why, where are you from? No, and then, of course, they follow up with, no, 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 not like, where were you born? But where are you from? Or I'd get the statement, you know, you're really well-spoken and articulate. Really? I mean, I was born here. English is my first language. How am I supposed to sound? Constantly reminded by these little things that in the eyes of other people, no matter what I did to fit in, I was never going to belong to them in their eyes. Fast forward, and 
COVID happens. For as much as we've always wanted to fit in, if you're Asian, we're reminded that because of the way we look, no matter how much we're American through and through, we're never going to be seen and accepted truly as being one of them. I mean, aren't we as American as the next guy? Because we all ended up here from somewhere else. It reminds me, this does, that at the end of the day, who you are cannot be ignored, cannot be blended away. Because who you are is who you are, and that's what will always shine through. Now, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, here's what I know. Is that one way or another, either because of our participation in the church, regular attendance, or whether it's because of our devotion to God in worship or in our fellowship activities or in our faith or in our practices or how we live, no matter what we might point to, at the end of the day, those who belong to Christ belong to Christ and it's always going to shine through. There Peter is standing in a courtyard and just by virtue of the fact that he walks with Jesus, he gets identified. He wasn't trying to advertise it. In fact, he was probably trying to skulk in the shadows a little bit as much as possible so that people wouldn't notice him too much. But in the reality of the world is that the world will, world knows its own and the world knows those who aren't its own. When we talk about, look at Peter's circumstances The world was questioning him. The people were questioning him. And in the face of that, he denied Jesus three times. It's not because he didn't love Jesus. It's not because he didn't believe in Jesus. But it points to the fact that he hadn't truly embraced all that he was and all that he was meant to be and all that he had in Jesus. Because for everything that Peter failed in, in that courtyard, Jesus was succeeding in for all that Peter could not be, and for all that the other disciples could not be in that moment, Jesus reminds us why our faith, our redemption, and our relationship with God never really rested with us in the first place. It rests upon Jesus. And ultimately, our actions are meant to be a response to him and to his work. I encourage you, as you look upon Jesus in our passage and look at the way that he stood there, that it would be inspirational to us in the way that we need to be reminded of who our God is and what he has done and the fact that he is through and through everything that he says he is and that that would inspire us to also want to be more a reflection of him. We cannot hide who we are. If you're in Christ, try as you might, try to fly under the radar, you will not ultimately succeed if you belong to Jesus. For those who belong to Jesus, we belong to Jesus for better and for harder to the end. And so, if you have stumbled, if when you read Peter's response, you maybe see a little bit of yourself 
if in the midst of seeing his actions, you can sympathize with kind of where you're coming from in one area or another, then I want to encourage you and remind you of who you are. Cannot be hidden. Cannot be hidden. And for all of you who already know very clearly who you are and have embraced it, I want to encourage you with this thought that every day that you have embraced it, you are becoming more and more a reflection of that very Lord who redeemed you, who loved you, who sacrificed himself for you. Amen? I'm so encouraged by those who live that life because the Christian life ain't easy. And I see so many people who struggle to embrace it fully. But for those, when I see people who've really embraced it fully and I see that consistency of life's life progression and identification as a response to Jesus and his work, it is encouraging. It honestly inspires my own courage. And so for all of you who've been faithful in that, God bless you for that, for reflecting Jesus and responding to Jesus. And for all the rest, maybe who have been struggling a, bit, a little bit more than that, then I want to encourage you to what you should aspire and what awaits you. Amen.